Welcome back to Caldi's Corner. Today, we are doing Reading 9 from World War Z by Max Brooks. If you're following along in the text, this begins on page 146. Burlington, Vermont. Winter has come later this season, as it has every year since the end of the war. Snow blankets the house and surrounding farmland, and frosts the trees that shade the dirt track by the river. Everything about this scene is peaceful, except for the man with me. He insists on calling himself the Wacko, because everyone else calls me that. Why shouldn't you? His stride is fast and purposeful. The cane given to him by his doctor and wife serves only to stab at the air. To be honest, I wasn't surprised to be nominated for vice president. Everyone knew a coalition party was inevitable. I'd been a rising star, at least until I self-destructed. That's what they said about me, right? All the cowards and hypocrites who'd rather die than see a real man express his passion. So what if I wasn't the world's best politician? I said what I felt, and I wasn't afraid to say it loud and clear. That's one of the main reasons I was the logical choice for co-pilot. We made a great team. He was the light, I was the heat. Different parties, different personalities, and let's not kid ourselves. Different skin colors as well. I know I wasn't the first choice. I know I wasn't the first choice. I knew who my party secretly wanted, but America wasn't ready to go that far. As stupid, ignorant, and infuriatingly ne neolithic as it sounds, they'd rather have a screaming radical for a VP than another one of those people. So I wasn't surprised at my nomination. I was surprised at everything else. You mean the elections? Elections. Honolulu was still a madhouse. Soldiers, congressmen, refugees, all bumping into another, trying to find something to eat, or a place to sleep, or just to find out what the hell was going on. And that was paradise, next to the mainland. The rocky line was just being established. Everything west of it was a war zone. Why go through all the trouble of elections when you could just have Congress simply vote for extended emergency powers? The Attorney General had tried it when he was mayor of New York and almost got away with it. I explained to the President that we didn't have the energy or resources to do anything but fight for our very existence. What did he say? Well, let's just say he convinced me otherwise. Can you elaborate? I could, but I don't want to mangle his words. The old neurons aren't firing like they used to. Please try. You'll fact-check with his library? I promise. Well, we were in his temporary office, the presidential suite of a hotel. He'd just been sworn in on Air Force Two. His old boss was sedated in the suite next to us. From the window, you could see the chaos in the streets, the ships at sea lining up to dock, the planes coming in every 30 seconds, and the ground crew pushing them off the runway once they landed to make room for new ones. I was pointing to them shouting and gesturing with the passion I'm most famous for. We need a stable government fast, I kept saying. Elections are great in principle, but there is no time for high ideals. The president was cool, a lot cooler than me. Maybe it was all that military training. He said to me, this is the only time for high ideals because those ideals are all that we have. We aren't just fighting for our physical survival, but the survival of our civilization. We don't have the luxury of old world pillars. 
we don't have a common heritage, we don't have a millennia of history, all we have are the dreams and promises that bind us together. All we have... Hmm, he struggles to remember. All we have is what we want to be. You see what he was saying? Our country only exists because people believed in it. And if it wasn't strong enough to protect us from this crisis, then what future could it ever hope to have? He knew that America wanted a Caesar, but to be one would mean the end of America. They say great times make great men. I don't buy it. I saw a lot of weakness, a lot of filth. People who should have risen to the challenge and either couldn't or wouldn't. Greed, fear, stupidity, and hate. I saw it before the war, I see it today. My boss was a great man. We were damn lucky to have him. The business of elections really set the tone for the entire administration. So many of his proposals looked crazy at first glance, but once you peel back the first layer, you realize that underneath there existed a core of irrevitable a core of irrefutable logic. Take the new punishment laws. Those really set me off. Putting people in stocks? Whipping them in the town squares? What was this, old Salem? The Taliban's Afghanistan? It sounded barbaric, un-American, until you really thought about the options. What were you going to do with thieves and looters? Put them in prison? Who would that help? Who could afford to divert able-bodied citizens to feed, clothe, and guard the other able-bodied citizens? More importantly, why remove the punished from society when they could serve as such a valuable deterrent? Yes, there was the fear of pain, the lash, the cane, but all of that paled when compared to public humiliation. People were terrified of having their crimes exposed, at a time when everyone was pulling together, helping each other out, working to protect and take care of one another, the worst thing you could do to someone was to march them up into the public square with a giant poster reading, I stole my neighbor's firewood. Shame's a powerful weapon, but it depended on everyone else doing the right thing. No one is above the law, and seeing a senator given 15 lashes for his involvement in war profiteering did more to curb crime than a cop on every street corner. Yes, there were the work gangs, but those were the recidivists. Those who'd been given chances time and time again. I remember the Attorney General suggesting we dump as many of them into the infested zones as possible, rid ourselves of the drain and potential hazard of the continued presence. Both the President and I opposed the proposition. My objections were ethical. His were practical. We were still talking about American soil. Infested, yes, but hopefully one day to be liberated. The last thing we needed, he said, was to come up against one of those ex-cons as the new grand warlord of Duluth. I thought he was joking, but later as I saw the same exact thing happen in other countries, as some exiled criminals rose to command their own isolated, in some cases powerful fiefdoms, I realized we'd dodged one hell of a speeding bullet. The work gangs were always an issue for us, politically, socially, and economically. But what other choice did we have for those who just refused to play nice with others? You did use the death penalty. Only in extreme cases. Sedition, sabotage, attempted political secession. Zombies weren't the only enemies. At least, not in the beginning. 
the fundies? We had our share of religious fundamentalists. What country didn't? Many of them believed that we were in some way interfering with God's will. He chuckles. <laughs> I'm sorry. I gotta learn to be more sensitive, but for crying out loud, you think the supreme creator of the infinite multiverse is gonna have his plans unraveled by a few Arizona National Guardsmen? <sighs> he waves the thought away. They got a lot more press than they should have, all because that nutbird tried to kill the president. In reality, they were much more of a danger to themselves. All those mass suicides, mercy killings in Medford, the terrible business. Same with the Greenies, the lefty version of the Fundies. They believed that since the living dead only consumed animals but not plants, it was the will of the divine goddess to favor flora over fauna. They made a little trouble dumping herbicide in a town's water supply, booby-trapping trees so loggers couldn't use them for war production. That kind of eco-terrorism eats up headlines but didn't really threaten our national security. The Rebs, on the other hand, armed, organized political secessionists, that was easily our most tangible danger. It was also the only time I ever saw the president worried. He wouldn't let on, not with that dignified diplomatic veneer. In public, he treated it as just another issue, like food rationing or road repair. He'd say in private, they must be eliminated swiftly, decisively, and by any means necessary. Of course, he was only talking about those within the Western safe zones. Those die-hard renegades either had some beef with the government's wartime policy or had already planned to secede years before and were just using the crisis as an excuse. The, these, these were the enemies of our country, the domestic ones. Anyone swearing to defend our country mentions in his or her oath. We didn't have to think twice about an appropriate response to them, but the secessionists east of the Rockies in some of the besieged, isolated zones. That's where it got complicated. Why is that? Because, as the saying goes, we didn't leave America, America left us. There's a lot of truth to that. We deserted those people. Yes, we left some special forces, volunteers, and tried to supply them by sea and air, but from a purely moral standing, those people were truly abandoned. I couldn't blame them for wanting to go their own way. Nobody could. That's why, when we began to reclaim lost territory, we allowed every secessionist in enclave, enclave a chance for peaceful reintegration. But there was violence. I still have nightmares. Places like Bolivar and the Black Hills. I never see the actual images, not the violence or the aftermath. I always see my boss. This towering, powerful, vital man getting sicker and weaker each time. He'd survived so much. Shouldered such a crushing burden. You know, he never tried to find out what happened to his relatives in Jamaica. Never even asked. He was so fiercely focused on the fate of our nation, so determined to preserve the dream that created it. I don't know if great times make great men, but I know they can kill them.
Wenatchee, Washington. Joe Muhammad's smile is as broad as his shoulders. While his day job as the owner of the town's bicycle repair shop, his spare time is spent sculpting molten metal into exquisite works of art. He is, no doubt, most famous for the bronze statue on the mall in Washington, D.C., the neighborhood's security memorial of two standing citizens and one seated in a wheelchair. The recruiter was clearly nervous. She tried to talk me out of it. Had I spoken to the NRA representative? Did I know about the other essential war work? I didn't understand at first. I already had a job at the recycling plant. That was the point of neighborhood security teams, right? It was a part-time volunteer service for when you were home from work. I tried explaining this to her. Maybe there was something I wasn't getting. As she tried some other half-hearted, half-assed excuses, I saw her eyes flick to my chair. Joe is disabled. Can you believe that? Here we were, with mass extinction knocking on the door, and she's trying to be politically correct? I laughed. I laughed right in her face. What did she think I just showed up without knowing what was expected of me? Didn't this dumb bee read her own security manual? Well, I'd read it. The whole point of the NSD program was to control your own neighborhood, walking or, in my case, rolling down the sidewalk, stopping to check each home. If, for some reason, you had to go inside, at least two members were always supposed to wait out in the street. He motions to himself. Hello? And what did she think we were facing anyway? It's not like we had to chase them over fences and across backyards. They came to us. And if and when they did so, let's say just for the sake of argument that there was more than we could handle. Shit, if I couldn't roll myself faster than a walking zombie, how could I have lasted this long? I stated my case very clearly and calmly. And I even challenged her to present a scenario in which my physical state could be an impediment. She couldn't. There was some mumbling about having to check with her CO. Maybe I could come back tomorrow. I refused. I told her she could call her CO and his CO and everyone right up to the bear himself. But I wasn't moving until I got my orange vest. I yelled so loud that everyone in the room could hear. All eyes turned on me, then to her. That did it. I got my vest and was out of there faster than anyone else that day. Like I said, neighborhood security literally means patrolling the neighborhood. It's a quasi-military outfit. We attended lectures and training courses. There were designated leaders and fixed regulations, but you never had to salute or call people sir or shit like that. Armament was pretty non-regulation as well. Mostly hand-to-hand jobs, hatchets, bats, a few crowbars and machetes. We didn't have Lobos yet. At least three people in your team had to have guns. I carried an AMT Lightning, this little semi-auto 22 caliber carbine. It had no kick, so I could shoot without having to lock down my wheels. Good gun, especially when ammo became standardized and reloads were still available. Teams changed depending on your schedule. It was pretty chaotic back then. De-stress, reorganizing everything. Night shift was always tough. You forget how dark the night really is without streetlights. There were barely any house lights, too. People went to bed pretty early back then, usually when it got dark. So, except for a few candles, or if someone had a license for a generator, like if they were doing essential war work from home, the houses were pitch black. You didn't even have the moon or stars anymore, too much crap in the atmosphere. We patrolled with flashlights, basic civilian store-bought models. We still had batteries back then with red cellophane on the end to protect our night vision. We'd stop at each house, knock, ask whoever was on watch if everything was okay, The early months were a little unnerving because the resettlement program. So many people were coming out of camps that 
Each day, you might get at least a dozen new neighbors, or even housemates. I never realized how good we had it before the war. Tucked away in my little Stepford suburbistan, did I really need a 3,000-square-foot house, three bedrooms, two baths, a kitchen, living room, den, and house office? I'd lived alone for years, and suddenly, I had a family from Alabama, six of them just show up at my door one day with a letter from the Department of Housing. It's unnerving at first, but you get used to it quickly. I didn't mind the Shannons. That was the family's name. We got along pretty well, and I always slept better with someone standing watch. There was one of the new rules for people at home. Someone had to be the designated night watchman. We all had their names on a list to make sure they weren't squatters and looters. We checked their ID, their face, asked them if everything was all quiet. They usually said yes, or maybe reported something that we'd have to go check out. But by the second year, when the refugees stopped coming and everyone got to know each other, we didn't bother with licenses or IDs anymore. Everything was calmer then. That first year, when the police were still reforming and the safe zones weren't completely pacified. He shivers for dramatic effect. There were still a lot of deserted homes, shot up or broken into, or left abandoned with the doors left wide open. We'd put police tape across the doorways and windows. If any of them were found snapped, it could mean a zombie was in the house. That happened a couple times. I'd wait outside, rifle ready. Sometimes you'd hear shouts, sometimes shots. Sometimes you'd just hear a moan, scuffling, and then one of your teammates would come out with a bloody hand weapon and a severed head. I had to put a few down myself. Sometimes when the team was inside and I was watching the street, I'd hear a noise, a shuffling, a rasping, something dragging itself through the bushes. I'd hit it with the light, call for backup, then take it down. One time, I almost got tagged. We were clearing a two-story job, four-bed, four-bath, partially collapsed from where someone had driven a Jeep Liberty through the living room window. My partner asked if it was cool to take a powder break. I let her go behind the bushes. My bad. I was too distracted, too concerned with what was going on inside the house. I didn't notice what was behind me. Suddenly there was this tug on my chair. I tried to turn, but something had the right wheel. I twisted, thought, turned my light around. It was a dragger. The kind that's lost its legs. It snarled up at me from the asphalt, trying to climb over the wheel. The chair saved my life. It gave me the second and a half I needed to bring my carbine around. If I had been standing, I might have grabbed my ankle, maybe even taken a chunk. It was the last time I slacked off at my job. Zombies weren't the only problem we had to deal with back then. There were looters, not so much hardened criminals, just as, as just people who needed stuff to survive. Same with squatters. Both cases usually ended well. we just invite them home, give them what they needed, take care of them until the housing folks could step in. There were some real looters, though. Professional bad guys. That was the only time I got hurt. He pulls down his shirt, exposing a circular scar the size of a pre-war dime. Nine millimeter, right through the shoulder. My team chased him out of the house. I ordered him to halt. It was the only time I ever killed someone, thank God. When the new laws came in, conventional crime pretty much dried up altogether. Then there were the ferals, you know, the homeless kids who'd lost their parents. We'd find them curled up in basements, in closets, under beds. A lot of them had just walked as far... A lot of them had walked from as far away as back east. They were in bad shape, all malnourished and sickly, a lot of times they'd run. Those were the only times I felt bad, you know, but I couldn't chase them. Someone else would go. Most of the times they'd catch up, but not always. The biggest problem were quislings. Quislings? Yeah, you know, the, the people who went nutballs and started acting like the zombies. Could you elaborate? <laughs> 
Well, I'm not a shrink, so I don't know all the tech terms. That's all right. Well, as I understand it, there's a type of person who just can't deal with a fight-or-die situation. They're always drawn to what they're afraid of. Instead of resisting it, they want to please it, join it, try to be like it. I guess that happens in kidnap situations, you know, like a Patty Hearst, Stockholm Syndrome type, or like in regular war when people who are invaded, they sign up for the enemy's army, collaborators, sometimes even more the diehard than the people they're trying to mimic. Like those, uh, those French fascists who were some of Hitler's last troops. Maybe that's why we call them quislings, like it's a French word or something. But you couldn't do it in this war. You couldn't just throw up your hands and say, hey, don't kill me, I'm on your side. There was no gray area in this fight, no in-between. I guess people just couldn't accept that. It put them right over the edge. They started moving like zombies, sounding like them, even attacking and trying to eat other people. That's how we found our first one. He was a male adult, mid-30s, dirty, dazed, shuffling down the sidewalk. We thought he was just in Z-shock until he bit one of our guys on the arm. It was a horrible few seconds. I dropped the cue with a headshot and then turned to check on my buddy. He was crumpled on the curb, swearing, crying, staring at the gash in his forearm. This was a death sentence and he knew it. He was ready to do himself until we discovered that the guy I had shot had bright red blood pouring from his head. When we checked his flesh, it was still warm. You should have seen our buzzy buddy lose it. It's not every day you get a reprieve from the big governor in the sky. Ironically, he almost died anyways. Bastard had so much bacteria in his mouth that it caused a near-fatal staph infection. We thought maybe we'd stumbled upon some new discovery, but it turned out it had been happening for a while. The CDC was just about to go public. They even sent an excerpt up from Oakland to brief us on what to do if we encountered more of them. It blew our minds. Did you know that quislings were the reason some people used to think they were immune? They were also the reason all those bullshit wonder drugs got so much hype. Think about it. Someone's on Flannix, gets bit, but survives. What else is he going to think? He probably wouldn't know there even was such a thing as quislings. They're just as hostile as regular zombies, and in some cases even more dangerous. How so? Well... For one thing, they didn't freeze. I mean, yeah, they would if they were exposed over time, but in moderate cold, if they'd gone under when wearing warm clothes, they'd be fine. They also got stronger from the people they ate. Not like zombies. They could maintain over time. But you could kill them more easily. Mm, yes and no. You didn't have to hit them in the head. You could take out the lungs and the heart, hit them anywhere, and eventually they'd bleed to death. But if you didn't stop them with one shot, they'd just keep coming until they died. They don't feel pain? Hell no. It's the whole mind over matter thing. Being so focused, you're able to suppress relays to the brain and all that. You really should talk to an expert. I'm sorry, please continue. Okay, well, that's why we could never talk them down. There was nothing left to talk to. These people were zombies. Maybe not physically, but mentally? You could not tell the difference. Even physically, it might be hard if they were dirty enough, bloody enough, diseased enough. Zombies don't really smell that bad. Not individually and not if they're fresh. How do you tell one of these from a mimic with a whopping dose of gangrene? You couldn't. It's not like the military would let us have sniffer dogs or anything. You'd use the eye test. Ghouls don't blink. I don't know why. Maybe because they use their senses equally, their brains don't value sight as much. Maybe because they don't have as much bodily fluid, they can't keep using it to coat the eyes. Who knows? But they don't blink and quislings do. That's how you spotted them. Back up a few paces and wait a few seconds. Darkness was easier. You just shone a beam in their faces. If they didn't blink, you took them down. And if they did? Well, our orders were to capture quislings if possible. 
and use deadly force only in self-defense. It sounded crazy. It still does, but we rounded up a few, hogtied them, turned them over to the police or National Guard. I'm not sure what they did with them. I've heard stories about Walla Walla, you know, the prison where hundreds of them were fed and clothed and even medically cared for. His eyes flicked to the ceiling. You don't agree? Hey, I'm not going there. You want to open that can of worms? Read the papers. Every year, some lawyer or priest or politician tries to stoke that fire for whatever side best suits them. Personally, I don't care. I don't have any feeling towards them one way or another. I just think the saddest thing about them is that they gave up so much and in the end lost anyway. Why is that? Because even though we can't tell the difference between them, zombies can. Remember early in the panic when everybody was trying to work on a way to turn the living dead against one another? There was all this documented proof about infighting, eyewitness accounts, and even the footage of one zombie attacking another? Stupid. It was zombies attacking quislings. But you never would have known that to look at it. Quislings don't scream. They just lie there, not even trying to fight, writhing in that slow robotic way, eaten alive by the fairy creatures they're trying to be. Malibu, California. I don't need a photograph to recognize Roy Elliott. We meet for coffee on the restored Malibu Pier Fortress. Those around us also instantly recognize him, but unlike pre-war days, keep a respectful distance. ADS. That was my enemy. Asymptomatic demise syndrome or apocalyptic despair syndrome, depending on who you're talking to. Whatever the label, it killed as many people in those early stalemate months as hunger, disease, interhuman violence, or the living dead. No one understood what was happening at first. We'd stabilize the Rockies, we'd sanitize the safe zones, and still. Still, we were losing upwards of a hundred or so people a day. It wasn't suicide. We had plenty of those. No, this was different. Some people had minimal wounds or easily treatable ailments. Some were in perfect health. They would simply go to sleep one night and not wake up the next morning. The problem was psychological, a case of just giving up. Not wanting to see tomorrow because you knew it could only bring more suffering. Losing faith, the will to endure. It happens all the, in all wars. It happens in all wars. It happens in peacetime too, just not on this scale. I was helpless. Losing faith, the will to endure. It happens in all wars. It happens in peacetime, too, just not on this scale. It was helplessness, or at least the perception of helplessness. I understood that feeling. I directed movies all my adult life. They called me the boy genius, the wunderkind who couldn't fail, and even though I'd done so, often. Suddenly, I was a nobody. In F6, 
The world was going to hell and all my vaunted talents were powerless to stop it. When I heard about ADS, the government was trying to keep it quiet. I had to find out from a contact at a Cedar sinai When I heard about it, something snapped. Like the time I made my first Super 8 short and screened it for my parents. This I can do, I realized. This enemy, I can fight. And the rest is history. <laughs> I wish. I went straight to the government that they turned me down. Really? I would think with, given your career... <laughs> what career? They wanted soldiers and farmers, real jobs, remember? It was like, hey, no dice, but uh, can I get your autograph? Now, I'm not the surrendering type. When I believe in my ability to do something, there's no such word as no. I explained to the de-stress rep that it wouldn't cost Uncle Sam a dime. I'd use my own equipment, my own people. All I'd need from them was access to the military. Just let me show the people what you're doing to stop this, I told him. Let me give them something to believe in. Again, I was refused. The military had more important missions right now than, quote, posing for the camera. Did you go over his head? To who? There were no boats to Hawaii, and Sinclair was racing up and down the West Coast. Anybody in any position to help me was either physically unavailable or too distracted with more important matters. Couldn't you have become a freelance journalist, gotten a government pass? It would have taken too long. Most mass media was either knocked out or federalized. What was left had to rebroadcast public safety announcements and make sure everyone was just, anyone who was just tuning in would know what to do. Everything was still such a mess. We barely had passable roads, let alone the bureaucracy to give me full-time journalist status. It might have taken months, months, with a hundred dying every day. I couldn't wait. I had to do something immediately. I took a DV cam, some spare batteries, and a solar-powered charger. My eldest son came with me as my sound man and first AD. We traveled on the road for a week, just the two of us on mountain bikes looking for stories. We didn't have to go far. Just outside of greater Los Angeles in a town called Claremont are five colleges. Pomona, Pitzer, Scripps, Harvey Mudd, and Claremont McKenna. At the start of the Great Panic, when everyone else was literally running for the hills, 300 students chose to make a stand. They turned the women's college at Scripps into something resembling a medieval city. They got their supplies from the other campuses. Their weapons were a mix of landscaping tools and ROTC practice rifles. They were... They planted gardens... They planted gardens, dug wells, fortified an already existing wall. While the mountains burned behind them and the surrounding suburbs descended into violence, those 300 kids held off 10,000 zombies. 10,000 over the course of four months and until the Inland Empire could finally be pacified. We were lucky to get there just at the tail end, just in time to see the last of the undead fall as cheering students and soldiers linked up under the oversized, homemade old glory fluttering from the Pomona Bell Tower. What a story. 96 hours of raw footage in the can. I would have liked to have gone longer, but time was critical. 100 a day lost, remember? We had to get this one out there as soon as possible. I brought the footage back to my home, cut it together in my edit bay. My wife did the narration. We made 14 copies, all in different formats, and screened them that Saturday night at different camps and shelters all over L.A. I called it Victory at Avalon, the Battle of the Five Colleges. The name Avalon comes from some stock footage one of, one of the students had shot during the siege. It was the night before their last worst attack, when a fresh horde from the east was clearly visible on the horizon. The kids were hard at work, sharpening weapons, reinforcing defenses, standing guard on the walls and towers. A song came floating across the campus from the loudspeaker that played constant music to keep morale up. A Scripps student. 
the voice like an angel, was singing the Roxy music song. It was such a beautiful rendition and such a contrast with the raging storm about to hit. I laid it over my preparing for battle montage. I still get choked up when I think about it. How did it play with the audience? It bombed. Not just the scene, but the whole movie. At least that's what I thought. I expected a more immediate reaction, cheering, applause. I never would have admitted this to anyone, even to myself, but I had this egotistical fantasy of people coming up to me afterward, tears in their eyes, grabbing my hands, thanking me for showing them the light at the end of the tunnel. They didn't even look at me. I stood by the doorway like some conquering hero. They just filed past silently with their eyes on their shoes. I went home that night thinking, oh well, it was a nice idea. Maybe the potato farm in MacArthur Park could use another hand. What happened? Two weeks went by. I got a real job helping to reopen the road at Topeka Canyon. Then one day, a man rode up to my house, just came in on horseback as if out of an old Cecil B. DeBille Western, and he was a psychiatrist from the county health facility in Santa Barbara. They'd heard about the success of my movie and asked if I had any extra copies. Success? <laughs> That's what I said. As it turns out, that very night after Avalon made its debut, ADS cases dropped in LA by a whole 5%. First, they thought it might be just a statistical anomaly, until a further study revealed that the decline was drastically noticeable only among communities where the movie was shown. And no one told you? No one. <laughs> not the military, not the municipal authorities, not even the people who ran the shelters where it was still continuing to be screened without my knowledge. I don't care. The point is it worked. It made a difference. And it gave me a job for the rest of the war. Got a few volunteers together, as much of my old crew as I could find. That kid who shot the Claremont stock footage, Malcolm Von Resen? Yes, that Malcolm. He became my DP. We commandeered an abandoned dubbing house in West Hollywood and started cranking them out by the hundreds. We'd put them in every train, every caravan, every coastal ferry heading north. Took a while to get responses, but when they came, he smiles and holds his hands up in thanks. 10% drop throughout the entire western safe zone. I was already on the road by then, shooting more stories. Anacapo was already wrapped, and we were halfway through the Mission District. By the time Dos Palmas hit screens and ADS was down 23%, only then did the government finally take an interest in me. Additional resources? <laughs> no. I never asked for help, and they sure weren't going to give it to me, but I finally did get access to the military, and that opened up a whole new world. Is that when you made Fire of the Gods? He nods. The Army had two functioning laser weapons programs, Zeus and Methyl. Zeus was originally designed for munitions clearing, zapping landmines and unexploded bombs. It was small, light enough to be mounted on a specialized Humvee. The gunner sighted a target through a coaxial camera in the turret. He placed the aim point on the intended surface, then fired a pulse beam through the same optical aperture. Is that too technical? Not at all. I'm sorry, I became extremely immersed in this project. The beam was a weaponized version of solid-state industrial lasers, the kind used to cut steel in factories. It could either burn through a bomb's outer casing or heat it to a point that detonated the explosive package. The same principle worked for zombies. On higher settings, it punched right through their foreheads. On lower settings, it literally boiled their brain until it exploded through the ears, nose, and eyes. The footage we shot was de The footage we shot was dazzling. But Zeus was a pop gun next to methyl. 
The acronym stands for Mobile Tactical High Energy Laser, co-designed by the United States and Israel to take out small incoming projectiles. When Israel declared self-quarantine, and when so many terrorist groups were lobbing mortar rounds and rockets across the security wall, methyl was what knocked them down. About the size and shape of a World War II searchlight, it was, in fact, a deuterium, a deuterium fluoride laser, much more powerful than the solid state on Zeus. The effects were devastating. It blasted flesh from bones, then heated white before shattering into dust. When played at regular speed, it was magnificent, but it's slow-mo, fire of the gods. Is it true that the number of ADS cases were halved a month after the movie's release? I think that might be an overstatement, but people were lined up to see it on their off hours. Some saw it every night. The poster campaign showed a close-up of a zombie being atomized. The image was lifted right from a frame in the movie. The one classic shot when the morning fog actually allowed you to see the beam. The caption underneath read simply, Next. It single-handedly saved the program. Your program? No. Zeus and Methyl. They were in jeopardy? Methyl was due to close a month after shooting. Zeus had already been chopped. We had to beg, borrow, and steal, literally, to get it reactivated for our cameras. De-stress had deemed both as a gross waste of resources. Were they? Oh, inexcusably so. The M in Methyl's mobile really meant a convoy of specialized vehicles, all of which were delicate, none truly all-terrain, and each one completely dependent on the other. Methyl also required both tremendous power and copious amounts of highly unstable, highly toxic chemicals for the lasering process. Zeus was a little more economical. It was easier to cool, easier to maintain, and because it was Humvee-mounted, it could go anywhere it was needed. The problem was, why would it be needed? Even on high power, the gunner still had to hold a beam in place on a moving target, mind you, for several seconds. A good sharpshooter could get the job done in half the time with twice the kills. That erased the potential for rapid fire, which was exactly what you needed in swarm attacks. In fact, both units had a squad of riflemen permanently assigned to them, people protecting a machine that is designed to protect people. They were that bad? Well, not for their original role. Methyl kept Israel safe from terrorist bombardment, and Zeus actually came out of retirement to clear unexploded ordnance during the army's advance. As purpose-built weapons, they were outstanding. As zombie killers, they were hopeless studs. So why did you film them? Because Americans worship technology. It's an inherent trait in the national zeitgeist. Whether we realize it or not, even the most indefatigable Luddite can't deny our country's techno-prowess. We split the atom. We reached the moon. We filled every household and business with more gadgets and gizmos than early sci-fi writers could have ever dreamed of. I don't know if that's a good thing. I'm in no place to judge, but I do know that just like all those ex-atheists in foxholes, most Americans were still praying for the god of science to save them. But it didn't. But it didn't matter. The movie was such a hit that I was asked to do a whole series. I called it Wonder Weapons, seven films on our military's cutting-edge technology none of which made any strategic difference, but all of which were psychological war winners. Isn't that a lie? It's okay, you can say it. Yes, there were lies, and sometimes that's not a bad thing. Lies are neither good nor bad. Like a fire. They can either keep you warm or burn you to death, depending on how they're used. The lies our government told us before the war, the ones that were supposed to keep us happy and blind, those were the ones that burned, because they prevented us from doing what had to be done. However... By the time I made Avalon, everyone was already doing everything they could possibly do to survive. 
The lies of the past were long gone, and now the truth was everywhere, shambling down their streets, crashing through their doors, clawing at their throats. The truth was that no matter what we did, chances are, chances were, most of us, if not all of us, were never going to see the future. The truth was that we were standing at what might be the twilight of our species, and that truth was freezing a hundred people to death every night. They needed something to keep them warm. And so I lied. And so did the president, and every doctor, and priest, every platoon leader, and every parent. We're going to be okay. That was our message. That was the message of every other filmmaker during the war. Did you ever hear of the Hero City? Of course. Great film, right? Marnie made it over the course of the siege, just him shooting on whatever medium he could get his hands on. What a masterpiece. The courage, the determination, the strength, dignity, kindness, and honor really makes you believe in the human race. It's better than anything I've ever done. You should see it. I have. Which version? I'm sorry? Which version did you see? Um, I wasn't aware... Oh, that there were two? You need to do some homework, young lady. Marty made both a wartime and post-war version of the Hero City. The version you saw, it was 90 minutes? I think. Did it show you the dark side of the heroes in the Hero City? Did it show the violence and the betrayal, the cruelty, the depravity, the bottomless evil in some of those heroes' hearts? No. Of course not. Why would it? Our reality, and it's what drove so many people to get snuggled in bed, blow out their candles, and take their last breath. Marty chose instead to show the other side, the one that gets people out of bed the next morning, makes them scratch and scrape and fight for their lives because someone is telling them that they're going to be okay. There's a word for that kind of lie. Hope.